When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Good morning. Uh, my name is uh, Jim Knight. I am the Chief Education and External Officer at TES, uh, who are a school and teacher engagement uh, company. Uh, and I'm really pleased uh, to be joined on her own stand by uh, my good friend and the legendary Priya Lakhani, the founder of uh, Century Tech. And um, we're just going to spend the next half an hour chatting about some of the issues around uh, Century, around the technology and how it's helping teaching and learning um, uh, around the world. So, um, <clears throat> Priya, let me start by asking you, first of all, you know, what was the problem or what is the problem that you're trying to fix? Yeah, so the, I think the problem is not new to educators, right? So we have school systems all around the world. We know that we've got these amazing classrooms. We've got incredible teachers who work really hard. But we continue to have to deliver a sort of one-size-fits-all education, often to a class of 20 or 30 in parts of Africa, 65, 85. And most teachers go home... I think society thinks they go home at 3.30. They do not go home at 3.30. But they often leave at the end of the day thinking, I knew if I'd spent a bit more time or I had enough time, I could have differentiated for each of these different children. So we know that we need to personalise and differentiate for every child, but that's an impossible task. And then if we ask our teachers to do more, what was really incredible, and this is what I learned in 2012, was that teachers spend 60% of their time micro-marking, micro-assessing, planning on data and actually not in the classroom. So it was really no surprise that actually we looked at the TES workload challenge at that time. And at that time, 74% of teachers wanted to quit their jobs within three years. And we have a national crisis when it comes to the recruitment of teachers. And actually that survey was redone, I think it was last year, and it's gone up to 80%. So... What we were really trying to solve was how can we differentiate for each child, knowing that we're not going to be able to hire another 40,000 teachers. As much as Russell Hobby, I'm sure, is on that mission at Teach First and he's doing a great job, I'm not sure that's going to be possible. How can we use tools and technologies that have transformed every sector in the world but haven't really touched education yet? How can we leverage them to do better by our children? And really importantly, how can we leverage them to do better by our teachers? So uh, I don't know if you've seen it, but McKinsey, the management consultancy company, yeah. published a report uh, this week around what AI might be able to do for teachers. Yeah. Um, so you chose the AI neuroscience route 
Yeah. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, so actually this was not as simple a story. I didn't choose the route and said, how do I pigeonhole this and force it into the education sector because it's not there? We went with a problem-oriented approach. We looked at the problems which we just discussed and said, how do we solve them? And when I taught, I remember, I remember marking reams of essays, lots of long-form assessment, and then thinking, I remember this Greek student who was mind-blowingly bright, um, was clearly going to perform really well, but I wanted to stretch her somehow in her knowledge. And then I remember having this other student who had failed the year before and was really struggling. And I thought, I remember those two students. How can I give the one student on one end of the spectrum her stretch and the other one that fundamental support? Because what she was doing is she was just recalling facts and, and putting them on a piece of paper. And, you know, we've all had that experience. Well, I'm sure you haven't. I know I did. I wasn't the best student at school where the teacher said, Priya, you're really good at recalling this stuff, but you're not applying it. And application's a, a skill that we need, right? And so looking at that sort of approach, I thought, well, what else is tailoring and personalizing? And obviously, in the world, look, you know, seven years ago, there was all this talk of AI and big data. I didn't know what it was. So I was just intrigued. And I thought, what is this doing? How can we then leverage this essentially to solve this problem? And it was this sort of slightly organic, but, you know, approach of if we built it in a certain way, it could help. And this was really complicated, right? Because in the US, they were spending $160 million dollars on one particular company and investing in it to build exactly this solution. And I remember sitting there about two o'clock in the morning, clinical insomniac, thinking, we need to build a company or build a social enterprise or whatever that leverages technology. But these guys are doing it with $160 million. They've all got MBAs and they've all got MIT degrees. And I'm thinking, I'm in over my head. But I spotted something they were missing. They were putting the tech before the education. And I thought, no, because I remember teaching those two students, you've got to put the ed before the tech. So what do you got to do? What do, we, what do we know about education? We've got lots of material, lots of research on learning science. Frankly, you've got teachers. We've got some teachers in the audience here who I have the utmost respect for. Ask them. Ask, go and ask the Mark Steed of the world, you know, famous, influential heads. But for a, re, for a very good reason, how do you um, implement these methodologies in the classroom? Go and ask his team. Let's go and use all of that. Let's figure out a model where we're blending the learning science, the pedagogy, which he's an expert in. Then let's go to a neuroscientist, neuroscientists in universities who've done research for years. They're sitting on papers. They're not being implemented. Let's take some of those theories. How do, what do we know about how children learn? And then put those together first and then basically build an AI, a machine that learns by itself so it can use all of that, take a lot of data and essentially get smarter. But, so it's not a simple answer, but it it ended up becoming actually a machine, right, that we have today that has a lot more pedagogy and learning science in it. It has layers of artificial intelligence in it where it is useful. But AI is just a tool and a technology, right? It's, it's useful in some ways. It's thoroughly useless in many other ways. And so you've just got to find the right blend. And then, you know, five years, seven years now, later, we have something that we know works. Uh, and let me go straight to that because, you know, there's a lot of talk of AI here at BET yeah. this year. And you know, here in, in the UK and elsewhere, there's a big movement around research-based approaches and yeah. efficacy and evidence and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. How do we know what works? It's a really good question. I think the first thing you all have to realize is that in an impact sector where you're dealing with children and teachers' time, 
I think there's never, it's not a revelation that you need evidence that things work, right? This is not news to people. Um, Nesta have done a lot of work on this. The Education Endowment Foundation is there because of this. Uh, educate, UCL Educate, a fantastic program. We know evidence has got to be there. Um, because, and simply because if you're going to build a business in this area, you're not going to do very well if you can't show that sector that this is something that's going to impact essentially what is a public good, right? Um, and so it's really important to have that mindset at the beginning. How are we going to build this but constantly test it to be able to show that it works? And then the big question is, well, do we know it works and how do you do that? So some people talk about randomized controlled trials. Some people talk about, you know, there's various different methodologies. Innovative companies struggle with RCTs because you have to do nothing for about a year and not innovate while you're trying to test that, you know, and use that sort of methodology. How you know it works is you work with an, an independent institution like UCL. It knows what it's doing. It independently evaluates your data. It independently surveys and questions your teachers. And it comes out with an analysis that has academic rigor behind it. The other thing that you do that must never be ignored, because people talk a lot about these programs and organizations, ask teachers. They know what they're doing. Right? Speak to them and say, does this work for you? And you will find that some tools and technologies work beautifully for some because of the way in which they've been embedded, and some don't. Right? And if that teacher shares your particular problem, then you know that maybe they would have found a solution that works for you. So you've got to get the subjective qualitative feedback, and then you've got to get the quantitative analysis, and you've got to get the independent academic rigor on the quantitative analysis. And that's essentially what you do, and you work to do it, and you commit to doing it every single year, which frankly Century's been doing for five years since we launched, launched the technology. Okay, and then, so I think I understand how the AI and the neuroscience all... Blends in. ...kind of <laughs> came out, and the, you know, the machine learning and the differentiation and so on. You've then got the content element. Yep. And, so is that, how do you then ensure, yeah, because you, you can have a machine that feeds content and starts to understand how the content works for different types of pupils, I get that. How can you keep feeding enough content okay. that's yeah. of a quality that it's, you're still feeding for the right people? So this was one of my biggest mistakes. So uh, <laughs> I raised a lot of philanthropic money, if you like, from investors to create this, because as, as most people know, it's a social enterprise, it's, it's how Century operates. I made a fundamental error as a, a chief exec and founder, and I think we just have to be honest when we make those mistakes, you know, it's not, it's not all glamorous. Um, I said to my first investors in 2014 to 2015, we're going to build this machine, and it's going to be great, and it's going to be AI, you know, it's got all this stuff, and it's Educators have told me they're going to love it. I taught myself, you know, they're going to love it. It's going to be great. Don't worry about content. Content is a commodity. It's everywhere. Look around. It's online. You can just get it. You just chuck it on. Teachers create their own. Okay. Within about a year and a half of running Century, what I found was that content is not a commodity. Good digital content. Kids are on YouTube. Whether you want them to be or not, they're on YouTube. They're on the coolest, fun, most sexy looking games that are like addictive, that's persuasive AI. They want you on all the time, they're buying your time, right? You've got to be conscious of that as a parent. That's the quality of content that you're up against when you're building a learning machine. And so actually when I went out there and I had these amazing publishers around me who said, we've got content Priya, and it's a scanned textbook, I realized that's not good for digital content. So actually, this is a challenge. I'm not going to give you an answer. This is a challenge for this sector. We actually went out and then had to hire a lot of people that was not in my plan 
to go and create amazing content that was pedagogically sound. So most of our teachers, our former assistant heads, heads of department, etc., you know, the sort of go onto Twitter and ask people freelancers to create content for you doesn't work necessarily. So we had to go and build that content, make sure it was curriculum complete. And this is a challenge. So when you're dealing with statewide systems, you'll often have you can imagine the states that I'm talking about. They'll say, we don't want user-generated content. We don't want teachers creating content. We as a ministry are going to tell teachers what that content is. They have to have a model that fits for that. That's okay. That's e Look, I'm each to their own. But then they therefore then have to have a model that fit. They have to go and produce a lot of content. Here, we should say, okay, well, you know, how do we use a system like this that has this sort of data to make the content richer? Because it is going to be from individuals. Because you're tracking data, now we have lots of scary things about data, but data can be very powerful. You know exactly which word of which question is not engaging children. When a child goes onto a video, you can see exactly where they pause. Which demographic? Was it white pupil premium boys from Wigan who paused on that particular slide? Was it a certain demographic with certain special needs? So what you can actually do with content, amazingly with an AI, which collecting everything, is you can go to a publisher and say, we know exactly where kids are engaging. Why is that powerful? Because for years we've used textbooks. Go into a textbook and tell me, does that sentence make sense to the white pupil premium boys in Wigan? And I can tell you right now, no one knows. So what it does is it's a superpower for publishers, this technology. And that's why we have some fantastic relationships with some publishers, you know, on content, because they now know it's that sentence over there. They get everything else in class about Pythagoras' theorem or whatever else. That question or that sentence is throwing these kids off and they can make their content better. Okay, so Priya, despite what all of the people who are selling on every stand here at BET would tell you there is no silver bullet in education. There is definitely no silver. No, I'm going to tell you on this stand. <laughs> Jim, yep. I'm going to tell you on this stand right now, there is no silver bullet in education, right? Yep. And, and actually, teachers and head teachers know that. Yep. So trying to sell it is just isn't a good idea. Yep. So uh, my view is quite important when people are looking at different technologies to understand what it does really well and then what it, it doesn't do so well and where you then need the humans and you need other people yep. to do things. What's your answer in terms of how, where Century is strongest or other AI yeah. equivalents um, and where you still need the teachers, where you still need the humans, yeah. where you still need um, other interventions? Well, I want to do that one in a nutshell and go into something that might actually add value for people because I could do a Century pitch, go on the website, right? Speak to teachers, speak to head teachers and figure out it's for you. Um, an AI like Century, I know it's advanced in what it does, is never going to replace the teacher. I have a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old. Their schools actually independently use this system. So they're sometimes on it saying, mummy, you know, I'm on Century. They like to tell their mates, right, that it's their mum's uh, uh, company. But the fact is, is that I'm not sending my kids to a school where they're just putting them in front of screens and they've got, you know, half the number of teachers. They, they need that one-to-one -one human influence with a teacher. What it does is it frees teachers up, right? Teachers are now free to focus on collaborative learning, critical thinking, all those things that actually we know are important. We haven't talked about 21st century skills, but the fact is, you free teachers up. Also, you're not necessarily telling teachers to do more. Teachers can have a bit of time to themselves. I'm a huge advocate of CPD, right? Continuing professional development. It frees teachers up maybe to go and do that extra hour. I think every teacher should have CPD on leadership, not because they all want to be head teachers, but when a head teacher makes a decision, you're on that journey with your head teacher if you understand where they're coming from. So, 
It's about freeing them up. So Century does a lot of things. It's interventions, intelligent interventions. If a child's struggling in physics, it's the only machine that can tell you it's because they can't calculate equations in maths. Most rules-based systems that have pre-programmed that are as good as one human being. The whole point of this machine is as good as every single human being that's programmed it and now using it every second of every day around the world because it's an AI that learns by itself. But when you asked me and you talked about it's not a silver bullet, you know, okay, the thing about technology is that in a school, if you're going to take it in, you have to have the infrastructure to put any of these great companies, and I'm, they are great, I mean, look at all the founders, most of these people do it because they want to they improve education, right? You have to have the infrastructure to do it. You have to have the ability to embed the technology. We can go into a school where a head of maths or a head of department or a head of English says, I love the idea of this. If you go in and teachers have their arms folded, I don't want to use technology. Actually, you've got a bit more of a leadership issue and a change management issue to deal with. So you're not going to solve all problems at once by bringing something like this in. You've got to figure out in your school, one question, what are the problems that I'm trying to solve? Do I want to increase uh, outcomes in science or whatever else? Do I want to free some teachers up? Am I short of resources? How can this technology help? And then you need to come up with a plan as to how you're going to embed it. And that all, I mean, we do that with schools. We have an entire team uh, under Fergus Hamilton that they spend all day, every day in schools um, doing this sort of stuff. But you need the entire ecosystem. What you can't do is force it on someone and say, hey, you know, your GCSEs are going to go up by this amount. Because I think you're mis-selling if you do that. Okay. Let's then move on to, you know, you're one of the co-founders of the Institute for uh, Ethical AI in Education. So uh, there's an ethical set of questions which... Clearly, you believed uh, with others yeah. that need answering, and I'm happy to be on the advisory body for that. First of all, I hear from teachers some worries about AI. Yeah. Where do you think that's coming from, and what's the best answer to that? Where that's coming from, it used to come from this kind of not really understanding what it was, frankly, in Hollywood films. Actually, it, it is right to worry about it when you have Cambridge Analytica. And, and frankly, it's not AI. Right, people are, not, people are worried about AI in a sense. Actually, they're worried about data. They're worried about the fact that companies are collecting data on them. They are now aware that companies that said they weren't collecting data on them are collecting data on them in some spaces. Uh, and that's really scary. And it's in the news, right? And I'm worried about it. I'm looking at my phone thinking, you know, where is this? Like, is it being bugged? Is it being tracked? Like, you know, what's going on? And it's this whole idea of uh, identification, right? Identification... Um, correlation and then AI. And what that works, right, is that you all have phones, yeah? You can all be identified whether you like it or not because your mobile phone has a, a very um, individual uh, code, essentially, that it broadcasts when it's on. Uh, there are companies that buy number plate data, number plates of cars in the US, and they sell number plate data to see where your car is moving through systems. They know where you're going. They might not know it's Jim, but they know that you're an individual. They can see you going to a shop, We've got various uh, companies here like Tesco, Ocado that collect a lot of data. You see how your, individ your individual ID is essentially being tracked. Then the, then the worry is, is that essentially what people are doing is they're, they're correlating data. So now they're looking at cor correlations and patterns in data. That's data science. Correlations and patterns. How does Jim like to buy? 
Do we know that he's Jewish? Do we know that he's Christian? Do we know that he's Hindu? What do we know about him based on what he's buying? Is he away on... He's neither of those. Neither of those. But yeah, this is what they're trying to find out though, because is he going to go and purchase something here, there? And then beyond that, there's the AI element of what can a machine essentially autonomously learn by themselves? So I think there is a general consensus around the world, all of us included, like what's happening with this? And then I think what we like to do is we like to summarize that and say, it's AI. And actually, it's a lot bigger than that. And it is really worrying. What you've got to do is obviously ensure that when you're dealing with anyone that's talking about data, right? Here, we obviously have GDPR, right? For a while. And <laughs> we, uh, GDPR will remain in British law. Yeah, it's going to remain in British law. Data Protection Act. There we go. The, the, 1998. I remember reading that when I was a barrister. Right. Okay. So, um, <laughs> and citing clauses of it to people. Okay. So, we have to look at companies that are adhering to that. We have to look at companies and their practices. And we have to decide whether or not we trust him. And actually, I mentioned him before, but only because he's an ethicist and he's on the council and he's in front of me. But on uh, LinkedIn, Mark Steed has actually written only last week. And I like to read his articles because he is an ethicist. It's what He's an expert in it and he's an educator. He wrote a piece on AI and data and ethics and what, you know, what we should necessarily be concerned about. And you should read about it. I think rather than trusting maybe what other people are saying or looking at the media and coming up with your own views. If you read things like that, it actually puts into context what you ought to be worried about. And then by all means, you then have the questions when you come to companies using data, you have the right questions to ask them. And in, I know in the US, they're more sensitive about privacy of student data than uh, we are probably here. I, okay. are they? We, we, we can, yeah. it doh not matter. We can argue about it. Um, but who do you think should own that data? So the data belongs, so for, well, how I think, who I think owns the data is how we practice. So I can only talk about what Century does because that's obviously what I believe. The student owns his or her data. So actually here what happens is that if you leave the system, even, and this has actually become a bit of a problem for us. It's become a huge problem. We delete your data. Your personal, the way we've, the infrastructure of the system exists so that your personal data sits here if you like. And then the clever sort of the AI, the engines here. If you leave, you delete it. That's become a massive problem for us this year. It's, we're still going to continue to do that. But some students say, but I use Century in this primary school. Now I've gone to this secondary school. It's a different one. It's not linked. Can I have all my Century data back? And we say, oh, but when you left, it's, it's been an issue. It's a scaling issue for Century, which we will fix within a matter of weeks. Um, but interestingly, because of the ethical point of view, I landed myself in a, a slight problem in scalability. But that's okay because we can fix it. But we, I believe the data is the students. If it's teacher data and teacher learning, it's the teachers. If it's my data, it's mine. If it's my kids and even Rishi, nine and seven, it's theirs. And that's essentially, that's okay. how Century operates. But I, I can't speak for others. Now, and when I look elsewhere in the world, there are some countries less encumbered by democracy than we are, um, where they, the whole attitude to privacy and human rights and data is different. Yeah. And where they are, you know, in China, they're re recording, they're capturing a lot of data yeah. about children. Is that going to give them a big competitive advantage in this space? So it's a that's a really good question, because obviously at the moment there's an IP war in countries, right? So there's the who's creating the technology. So you've got sort of the wars between China and the US, and then you have an implementation war. People aren't creating their own AI, but who's sort of implementing it? And this is where some of the scary stories that you were telling I me, mean, the Uyghur Muslims, for example, in, in 
training camps that they say, you know, which obviously they're not. Um, people are getting worried about this sort of thing. Um, if, if they're going to develop technology in that way, it's going to stay in that country. Because what happens is that consumers and users of data, let's say in the UK, in the US, in Australia, in other countries that don't operate that way, are not going to use that technology. And the, so therefore they won't win that war. And the, 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 con, the example I give, case in point, is Huawei. Right, in the news you've got the Huawei debate. Because of the fears of what's going on with Huawei, you can see at government level there are questions as to whether we use their infrastructure or just peripheral infrastructure for 5G. Those conversations happen. So if people are really truly afraid that that is, they're collecting too much data, they're gonna use it in the wrong way, countries like ours, the US obviously has a whole other extreme stance on that, which may or may not be right. So I'm not gonna get involved in that debate, but you can see how people respond. So okay. you're, going to, you're, going to buy, you're going to get buy-in from the people that believe in how you're using their data. So in amongst that war, where do you go for inspiration when you're thinking about what next and how you grow? It's a, it's a really good question because this is a new space. Um, the inspiration for us is that actually we go to our head teachers and teachers that we work with. I don't think there is a, there is no one to go to in this. In, education's different. This is why we co-founded the Institute for Ethical AI in Education because education has its nuances, right? You can't, you can't deal with health potential regulation of data the same way that you might deal with um, schools and children. There, there are nuances and we've discussed this and there have been many debates at the council about this. Um, so actually we just ask the teachers, the head teachers, uh, parents, and they are our users. So we respect their opinion. They are our inspiration for pretty much anything. If you're an agile tech company, the way you develop your product, the way you use data, the way you keep it, delete it, all the rest of it, it's frankly led by them. Because if they're not happy, they're not gonna use your system. So I, I go to them. Final question, because we're about ad time. Um, so in your career, you've been a, a barrister, You've started and grown a big food business. You've now started and grown uh, a great education business. What's the vision for Priya? I think given the education sector, and it's big, it's the second largest sector in the world, arguably the most important, because it actually does affect your health. If you don't get good education, you can see correlations with um, your health. I think this is it. I think I've been here for a long time. I wish I could say... I wish the answer would be, Jim, let's, you know, let's all do this and then we can maybe go and solve other problems elsewhere. But we've got a lot of work to do. Um, we've got half a million teachers in, in this country um, where this will solve some of their issues, but there are other issues. I think you know that I'm a massive, passionate advocate of the teaching profession. The fundamental thing that I want to work on, I'm doing it on the side with the teacher trust, but is... Uh, we have to raise the profile of the profession, otherwise we're not going to keep our teachers. And that, that, goes beyond, that's, that comes first and foremost. You're not going to fix anything unless teachers feel like they're loved and trusted. So we've got to change that. They might be what we should pay them more. Difficult, but um, there's a lot of things we can do. So I think education's it. I think this is it. I think we've got a lot to do. We've got a lot to learn. There are loads of challenges. I'm not trying to say that we get everything right the first time, but we're in it for the long haul. So if anybody wants to work with us. Um, if anyone in this arena who's exhibiting wants to work with Century, we fundamentally believe in it's got to be an ecosystem and we're all here to help. So I'd, I'd love to hear from them. If people want to give critical feedback, give it, support, offer it. Um, but I think for me, this is it. And I think we've just got to grow this thing together and we've just got to do the right thing. 
Thank you very much, Priya. Thank you. Um, thank you for hosting us on your lovely stand. Uh, thank you all for coming. This is the first in what will become a series on the Tez Recommends podcast channel. So uh, start to link in with that and hook up with that. And um, if you, you who are here live um, want to listen to it again, because it was just so awesome, then uh, that's where you'll find it. Uh, thank you and see you again next year. Thanks. See you. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.